Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. Teaching is a complex skill that requires deep knowledge and practice. This is particularly true when the classroom suddenly transitions online and new pedagogical skills need to be learned and adapted quickly. Continuously learning and innovating in teaching is essential for helping students learn. To discuss how to innovate in teaching, I'm joined by a university professor whose teaching has won her many prestigious teaching awards. Dr. Melanie Adrian is Associate Professor in the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. She has been appointed to the Order of Ontario, the province's highest honour, for establishing Carleton University as a global leader in protecting vulnerable scholars and also founding an organization to help cancer patients navigate their treatment options. In addition to her academic work, Melanie is also a pioneer and innovator in her pedagogical approach. In 2019, she was appointed one of Carleton University's inaugural Chair in Teaching Innovation. This prestigious position is awarded to educators who have demonstrated teaching excellence and innovation across their academic careers. It provides the professor with funding to develop a scholarly project to advance teaching excellence with a particular emphasis on the strategies to foster student success. Throughout her career, Melanie was recognized as an exceptional teacher. At Harvard University, she was awarded five distinctions in teaching. And at Carleton University, she received several teaching awards from the Faculty of Public Affairs and several at the university level. I'm grateful to have her here to discuss how she innovates and experiments with teaching methods to improve the learning experience. Thank you, Melanie, for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's absolutely wonderful to know that throughout your career, you have been very, very interested in teaching and learning and pedagogy and how you impact your students in your class. So how did you become interested in experimenting and also learning about different pedagogical approaches? Where did that begin? I think I've always been interested in how people learn and more importantly, what they do with that knowledge and what the connection in the classroom can lead to. So I've just always been fascinated by that and I've just tried to develop it and understand it in different ways throughout my life. So what have you seen where it leads? What are some inspiring situations? Yeah, first of all, I'm really motivated by watching students learn and then understand a bigger picture. So what I call that aha moment, right? Mm. Where something that they've been reading and maybe struggling with, or maybe not connecting in the way that they ultimately will connect it. And all of a sudden you see this light (laughs) behind their eyes, right? Yes. And they realize that, you know, things are, things are falling into place for them. And so I, I love that, that piece of teaching. And if anything, I think that is my single most important motivator, uh, I would say in my teaching to to witness that and to be a part of that and then to build on that right and to say oh so you connected this right so let's take that into this context or let's apply it here or what do you think of this and how would that impact how you see this idea so that's where it becomes it's so 
interesting and fascinating. And- oh, it really is. It's there's nothing better than when you see that aha moment, as you said, that's really, really fantastic. So what does good teaching look like at the higher educational institution? What does that mean to you? So I think it means something different for everyone, but I think for me, it's about positive social change. So either for that person, right? So they change in some way, they gain a skill set, they gain knowledge and understanding of the world and, and how they will ultimately live in that world. And also for a lot of my students who are, you know, human rights students who come with a, with a desire to change the world, it's about helping them and learning from them as well to navigate the world with new ideas, with, uh, with a fire that's directed in ways that are going to be interesting and engaging for the world. And so really it's about helping them find their voice and being strategic about how to use that voice. Mm, That's absolutely, it's life-changing. So in March of 2020, the pandemic pushed schools and universities online, and there was an urgent desire to find the best tools and platforms to use. And of course, teaching became very different and challenging in many ways. So you have said that at that time, you decided not to focus on the tools, which is what a lot of people were trying to find the best tools, but rather on creating what you also just said, the aha moments. What do you mean by this? I mean, you said the sparkle in the eye and the seeing the connection, particularly in an online environment. What did that mean to you? What did that look like? Yeah. When we were told that we were going to be online, uh, I panicked, first of all, and then I really thought about, and I took a few weeks to think about this, what is it that I can do online? What is most important in terms of how I teach and the experience that I can bring to the university sector? And how can I bring that out? That's what I was thinking Mm. about. You know, there are all these new tools and recording and flip classrooms and, you know, all of these different ideas swelling around and and generally a lot of panic in the air, both by students, I think, and by professors. But I didn't think about the tools. I thought about what I wanted to accomplish first. And it was very clear to me that I wanted to try to recreate that moment of growth in the online world. And that became my goal. And so from there, I just worked backwards. So how do I want to do that? What do I have to do? What do I have to accomplish so that students can be at that point and then we can engage in that way? So I I was really lucky. I worked through a a grant between Carleton and the University of Ottawa I worked with. A colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Laurie Beeman, who also teaches religious freedom, and I was tasked with teaching that online in the fall. She and I thought a lot about how we wanted to do this together. And it was such an extraordinary collaboration because we came together in that, you know, united passion for our subject area. And also in the question of, but how do we do this effectively online? Mm-hmm. And I think we, we agreed that our guiding principle should be a multi-perspectival approach to learning. So that meant that we created a series of case studies. And in every week, there, was, there would be a different case study that highlighted certain aspects of our subject matter through a very specific grounded case, a legal case. And we taught 
the students about that using different methods. So we had a podcast, so something to listen to. We would have videos, something to watch. We would have obviously the cases and then other materials to read. And so we brought that out in these different ways so that, you know, we also thought about students being on the move. We thought mm-hmm. about students not having access to the internet. We thought about students, how they were going to access this information, right? Mm-hmm. Which would be a challenge for a lot of students who don't live in urban areas or don't have good internet connectivity or- Absolutely. Uh, and, and also not to spend all their time online lectures, which is really, really, as we found out, very exhausting. So you've already created that hybrid model of doing things offline asynchronously, but then coming together and discussing it in, in your lectures, right? Well, so what I did, <laughs> I turned it all around because so on the kind of course pack front, kind of the, the substantive pieces, we put this course together. But then I, I thought a lot about how do I now keep their attention? How, how, do you, mm-hmm. how do you engage, right? That was the word that we were all thinking about. Thinking, of course, that when they're in the classroom, they're forced to engage to a greater or lesser extent, depending on the class and so on. But how do you do that online? And so my intuition, my gut said, mm, I think it would probably be best if the students were put into groups so that they could move through the entire class with a group of other Hmm. students and have a continuing conversation with their classmates. So you broke down your classes into smaller manageable groups. Well, so, well, I I ended up doing a study on this so that, so that I could understand how small the groups had to be. But Yeah. yeah, so the, so both classes were broken down into various sized groups and we can talk a little bit more about the experiment yes. I ran, if you'd like, later. But but the idea was that the students would accompany one another in the dialogue mm-hmm. of the class, the ongoing conversation that that entailed. And so they were asked to submit commentary online. Then they were asked to respond substantively to each other's ideas. Then they met in what I call book club outside of the class, but they were, they would do that once a week. And then they would meet with me in a live tutorial. And that's where hopefully we would be able to engage in such a way that everything would come together. So you really found ways of creating that social experience because you have said in the past that you believe learning is first and foremost a social experience. And so you really found different ways of creating a social experience, didn't you? What I hoped was that there would be connectivity Mm -hmm. because I think dialogue is what helps ideas flourish, change, develop. It's contagious in dialogue. Absolutely. So that's what I hoped. And um, I I don't have the data yet from the study, (laughs) but I'm getting it this week. Well, that's fantastic. Well, that sounds really engaging and incredibly impressive that in such a stressful time, uh, when so much was changing, you took the time to reflect on the essence of what you were trying to teach and also connecting with another professor in your field to collaboratively and discuss and support each other, which is such an important part of being able to create good teaching experiences. That's, that's really great. 
Although your academic career is in law, you have taken a keen interest in teaching from a very young age. And after your undergraduate degree, you actually took a job teaching English at a small fishing village in Japan. So your interest in teaching really does go back to the very start and had, you had very interesting experiences. So what did you learn from this experience? Well, everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> I was in a tiny little fishing village about two hours from Nagasaki called Kasusacho. And I had no training in pedagogy. I had no training in teaching. I had no training in curriculum design. So largely I just made everything up. <laughs> and, uh, but I think what really helped was a couple of things. One, I started off teaching by being the learner. So important. So I didn't know anything about Japanese yeah. culture and I didn't speak Japanese. I was kind of dropped into this little village and just really wanted to learn, frankly, about the community, about the area, about everything, everything. And so I, I really studied very intensively the Japanese language. And I watched and I listened. I learned how to be respectful and bow and eat with chopsticks and <laughs> all great. of those things. I think in the end, when I re reflect back on that moment, I think that brought me and gave me a lot of gifts, actually, that kind of attitude of immersion and openness and humility, uh, because they really, the community really adopted me. They taught me how to function well and what was expected of me. What was expected of me was interesting because it didn't work for me at all because what they really, I mean, the way that English was taught at the time was about memorization. And, uh, you know, at first I didn't understand, you know, I would ask a question, how are you? And I would get the same answer for every single student. And it's because they had only been taught one answer. Oh, I see. Question. <laughs> and I was kind of flummoxed by that at the beginning. You know, the teachers would say, you know, just teach them how to say it better. But ultimately, I felt like a voice recorder. You know, I said, well, I could just put this on a tape for you and you could just press play if you like. Mm. But that's not really how I thought language should be taught. But I kept those opinions to myself, frankly, as I learned more Japanese and I learned more about the culture. What I learned is that culture is so intimately tied to language acquisition, of course, hmm. right? Yes. And the way that they were teaching English is the way that they were teaching Japanese, which is m memorization. So it's not about creativity. It's not about critical thinking. It's not about how to put different, you know, at the very high levels, obviously. But if you're learning those kanji, you have to know in what order and how to do it. And you just have to memorize that. So as I was understanding or came to understand that, I also came to understand what they were doing in the English classes. But there was a moment when a few months in when I said to them, so I'd like to run a bit of an experiment, right? <laughs> and they were a little wary. <laughs> yes, I can, I can see that. <laughs> but really what I suggested to them is that I integrate a little bit more of, you know, a different approach, a different cultural approach to learning English. And that involves choice, right? That involves different types of sentence structures uh, that will make it more specific and nuanced and so on. And so slowly I started developing a lessons around those kind of concepts. And then of course, being young and not speaking 
Japanese very well at all and, you know, making all kinds of mistakes. The classroom, once they then gave me my own classroom, I was able to create a different kind of educational experience for those students. Hmm. And so we got to the point where they said, you know, you know, ah, <laughs> you know, teacher Adrian's coming. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> but, so, but what I, what I did was just try to actually bring them into a different kind of cultural context in that class. What impact did you, did you see that having on them? Well, there was a lot of laughing. <laughs> which was not very common in the Japanese school system. <laughs> so there was a lot of laughing and there was a lot of connecting at a, just mm. at a human level. And I think even though I was young and I made lots of mistakes, they gave me the leeway, both the administration and the students really, to, to engage in that way. In the classroom and outside of the classroom, we developed different programs where we would use our English in different ways. And so uh, the extracurricular and the curricular pieces started really playing together in a way that just taught students a lot and made students a lot more confident. You know, the Japanese students tend to be very, very shy. And so the teachers observed that they would say hello to me in the hallways and they would, you know, a few would give me high fives, you know. <laughs> so I st slowly started encroaching on that piece. And I think it just, it just taught them more and it taught them to be more confident. The students, I'm still in touch with some of the students from that time. Nice. And it's so wonderful to see them. And many of them have gone on to study English and to, or to use English in different ways. So that's wonderful to see. It's that's wonderful. amazing. What a rich learning experience, both for the students and also for you to see that the importance of demonstrating your own learning, because you also had to learn Japanese and learn the culture, and also to see in, in a much more extreme situation where the culture is very different from your own culture, that you need to be that learner and you need to consider where they're coming from, which I think often people can forget when the students are in your culture, but they might be coming from very different home lives or backgrounds or ways of thinking about learning that is not quite so visible as a different nationality culture. So that's, mm -hmm. those are really important highlights mm -hmm. in that experience, I think. You know, it, it's interesting. After that, I went on to, to study anthropology in more depth. And uh, what I realized is that every culture of every university, of every department, so not just national cultures, have different expectations yes and so have true. different ways of understanding the world and customs you know it's not unlike what happens to university students who are coming in their first year to university mm -hmm. who may be completely unfamiliar right with the university culture and what we expect at the university culture and and what we expect from them i think this is where largely many of us professors fail because we don't teach what it means to be part of this culture. We Absolutely. assume students are here to learn and this is what they have to do, but how they do that, how they communicate their ideas or, or even outside of class with professors and staff members is really important and can either lead to great success or prohibit that. I take that, you know, from my time in Japan in particular. That's amazing. And I know you do a lot of work with that in mind, because as you said, each university, each institution has a different culture. Academia in itself has a different culture. And it also actually 
is what contributes to a lot of people feeling very intimidated, sometimes even to apply, but then also intimidated maybe to interact with their professors once they're in the university, because maybe they don't have a family member who's gone to university or somehow they're disconnected from the culture. So what are some strategies that you use to help introduce people into the culture of the university and also into the culture of your profession? So so I I have this approach, let's call it, and I, I call it tip of the week. Every week, every at the end of every class or twice, twice a week, depending on the class, I just give students a general little piece of advice. And they include everything from, you know, what are office hours? Office hours are not like going to the principal's office, right? It's not a bad thing. It's a good mm-hmm. thing. And uh, how to ask for a reference letter from a professor, how to address a professor or staff member in an email what to do during office hours and what not to do importantly during office hours, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I, I started this because, well, I received a lot of emails with yo professor <laughs> or just yo, <laughs> oh uh, and then a lot of emoticons. So what I realized was, first of all, I was irritated by this, mm-hmm. uh, very irritated. And my colleagues were irritated. And I said to my colleagues, well, what do you do with those emails? And they said, well, I just don't answer them. Oh. I don't think that's the lesson here. I think actually when we when we look at the students who don't know how to write those emails or how to communicate in that way, it's not that they're doing this intentionally. Likely they haven't been taught how to do this. Mm-hmm. That then gets it at questions of, of social class. It gets at questions of educational opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're doing then is disadvantaging the already disadvantaged. Yes. So I, I really just didn't think that was the answer. So anyway, so I put together tips of the week and they're written in kind of a funny way so that students remember them and sometimes they laugh and, you know, and sometimes they're life pieces. Sometimes they're very specific pieces to the university education and pathway. And it's fascinating. The response to those has been really, really incredibly positive. What have you found surprising in the way students respond? So... So I, I'm, I'm always surprised that students don't know that they should write in full sentences when they write to a professor. Mm. So I'm very explicit, right? Mm. When you write to a professor or staff member in a professional capacity, you must use their full title and name, comma, space, full sentence, period, right? Because that is how we interact in a professional way. Absolutely. And it's so important because, as you said, some of your colleagues, they make a judgment on it and they don't respond, which a university or any educational institution is a place to also teach the culture around the subject, around the the area that you're in. But once you get out into the workplace or in another context, people just make a judgment because you're not in the frame of the culture that you're in. So that's such an incredibly important thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I absolutely don't want to throw my colleagues under the bus here at all, because I understand uh, where they're coming from. Absolutely. We're tasked with so many different pieces, uh, with a lot of volunteer work, frankly, right, that we do to help propel students forward. Everything from the reference letters to cultural engagement to connecting students with different opportunities and, and so forth. And so I think you have to just choose. We all only have so much time, particularly now. So you have to choose what you want to focus on. Yeah. And what kind of feedback have you received from students in terms of 
you said you received very positive feedback. What have they told you that really impacted them? Yeah, on the evaluations, that is the number one comment that students have. They thank me for that Mm -hmm. uh, because across the board, it's a positive comment about how it helped them, how it helped them to navigate some of the tricky conversations that they have to have with faculty members and colleagues to some of their personal life pieces. So I, we talk about, you know, sleep, for example, uh, sleep management, getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise. This is all really important for the brain to regenerate and for mm-hmm. the body to function. And so for the mind to function, you know, these kinds of pieces and uh, to write a thank you note to people mm-hmm who have helped you write a thank you note to, you know, whoever your greatest supporters are in your life, literally, physically, a note, do not email and do not text. We have to express your gratitude to people who help you. That's really important in life. And that's, uh, as my 15 year old daughter would say, that's a life hack. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And then of course, in the professional sphere, it's helped them to navigate the conversations, to know how to behave in an, in office hours, right? What to do, what to ask. How do you connect with a professor, right? I think uh, most of us don't realize that we may be daunting and, you know, we may be scary for a lot of students, right? And, and so I think we have to bridge that a bit because most of us are inviting and want to speak to students and, yes. you know, want to engage with students. So... But especially in undergrad, so many students don't even realize they can approach their professors. So yeah. being introduced into the culture of what is expected and what is normal is so important because I've spoken to so many undergrads who, when I say, well, go and speak to your favorite professors and find out what do they do in their, how do they do their research? What do they do in their job? And they're almost unanimously kind of surprised, like, oh, should I, can I? So having these norms are incredibly, incredibly important. And for the profession, for their professional, once they leave the university. In this regard, what is definitely talked about often now in higher education is experiential learning, which in essence is trying to also introduce students and teach them skills that are going to be important when they are acting out their learning. So they're putting it into practice. So teaching them skills, not just to learn it theoretically, but to practice it as well. So what are your thoughts on experiential learning and what it means in this regard of also incorporating professional skills? Yeah, I'm critical. I'm torn. I don't like the word experiential learning at the university level at all. And, and I realize I'm going against the trend here because I think every university strategic report at this point has some sort of reference to experiential learning. Here's, here's how I think about it. The university has engaged in developing skill sets for students for centuries, very practical skill sets that are applicable in any kind of workplace scenario. Mm-hmm. So reading critical analysis, writing, summary, how to find information, which we call research methodology, (laughs) how to uh, bring that together, how to engage ideas. All of those are, in my mind, practical pieces that are part of the university education. And so when we use this word experiential, 
the problem I have is that what we're actually thinking about, what I think they mean, this idea, is that we want to educate students to function in a particular workplace setting, in a particular industry, and not as specifically as within the college level, but to have that kind of practical immersion experience. And to some extent, I agree that it's really good for students to have experiences, period, in workplaces, abroad, on internships, etc. I think that's fantastic. But I think we're losing with this engagement of this idea, the central mission of the university, which is providing that skill set and marrying that to the big ideas, to the big theories. What we provide at the university is not how to be a social media savvy person, is not how to you know, be a carpenter or a mechanic or whatever it might be. That's not what we do. We have a fantastic college system in this country. Mm -hmm. And that's partly what they do. They also do other things. What our value add at the university is, I think, we are creating and developing and interacting with minds that can, through those skills and using those skills, engage with, change, develop, lead the development of ideas and industries, technologies, whatever students choose to do. So I think that's, that's what we do best. And I think the more we dilute what we already do best, the more problematic that is. And what do you think is what's being lost? You're not saying that you shouldn't be teaching practical cultural skills for the profession because you or yourself are doing that in terms of your tip of the week and, and introducing students to the university culture. So what exactly do you think is being lost in the way that experimental learning is being talked about? How would you take the ideas that you would want to be incorporated in creating that opportunity for students? I can give you a very concrete example of this. So I've been running a course for the last few years called Academia and Activism. And the course looks at kind of this set of concepts through the ideas and the, through the examination of uh, fact, truth, and then positionality. So who am I as a person vis-a-vis -vis my research and what does that mean? And so those are kind of, those are the theoretical questions that we ask and concepts that we work through. At the same time, we take on a scholar that is imprisoned because of their research and we advocate for that scholar. So while we talk about how we position ourselves, we are actually engaging this positionality. We work with an organization called Scholars at Risk, and they help us to, to navigate all of this and to incorporate it. They have a program and people who help us do this. And so in that class, there's a real balance between these big ideas where they have to engage theoretically and so on, and how we actually advocate. Do we advocate or are we activists? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And then how do we do it? And how do we understand then truth fact? So how do we right. think about that in terms of the context of this particular scholar? You know, that class, the university would highlight that class and say, this is an example of experiential learning. And it is, but it takes time. And so this class, I can't go into the theoretical detail that I could if this were a purely theoretical course. So it takes time, it takes a lot of time. And so something is lost in that. 
So we can do that. And I engage that. I, so I am involved in experiential learning, but only because the key piece that I focus on with the students throughout the course and then through their engagements for the scholar is how does this connect to the big picture? Right. So you're not teaching those skills in the profession separately, which might be the way that experiential learning is interpreted. Is that what right. you mean? And that's where I think, again, the university, this is what we're good at. We should be good at, right? We yeah. should be good at taking that piece, in this case, you know, the scholar who's in prison, and putting them in a larger context so that students can understand who this scholar is, why they're in prison, and what and how they can and should act vis-a-vis -vis their advocacy platforms that set of deeply theoretical actions, right? So it's not about just how do we do this? How do we create this advocacy platform? That's not the question. The question is, how do we do it in consideration of these larger ideas, right? So if experiential learning is that, yes. If experiential learning is about strategic workplace engagement, absolutely not. Because it's removed from the deep knowledge that the university is trying to teach, uh, which is the theoretical, the historic, deeper knowledge and skills that are being taught. And through this process, you really also use reflection a great deal and guided reflection, which is a very important learning tool that is not so frequently applied, unfortunately. So can you talk a little bit about the way that you guide your students through reflecting in this process of connecting the theory to the practice? I, I think in order to answer this question, I have to take a, a step back and say, first, how do I teach? How do I approach teaching, right? And my general approach uh, for any class that I've uh, taught so far has been really to think about the in-class time in 10 to 15 minute segments. So in 10 to 15 minute segments and then accompanied by uh, a certain plan, but let me lay that out a little mm -hmm. bit more clearly. <laughs> so, so the way that I approach teaching is twofold. So I always have a plan in place in terms of my kind of deliverables that I have in my head and written down as to what are the takeaways that I'd like the students to have for yes. that day that then relate to the week that then relate to the overall course. But, but I do that in these 10 to 15 minute segments that students have partially, you know, I give context. So it was like a mini lecture. They have a reflection at some point. They do group work at some point, another type of activity. We come together, we discuss, right? And this is where this basic framework of ideas coming out of the discursive moment is really taken to heart, right? Because they, they talk with different people, they have different perspectives, they hear the ideas in different ways, and they see them. You know, I use a lot of drawing, I use a lot of, not so much technology, actually, but paper, pencils markers and whiteboards are my favorite tools because they're on the spot. You can change them. You can change your mind about what you write on that whiteboard, right? So that's really how I approach the classroom. And it this also leads back to the aha piece. When you're in a classroom with, let's say, 65 students and at a third year level, you can get to know them pretty well. 
know how they're thinking, where they are, how they're approaching some of the subject matter. And the more you get to know them, the more dynamic the classroom environment can be. Uh, so I have a number of different rules that make that happen too, that I should probably mention. <laughs> and that is, I have an absolute ban on technology for them in the classroom. Okay. No computers, no cell phones, no beeping watches, no nothing. They have to come and just be in that moment. And that's tricky these days. I have a lot of students in withdrawal, <laughs> you know, within the first 30 minutes of the course that, you know, are getting twitchy. By week three, they're used but that's an important kind of boundary to set, again, looking at the purpose of what are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? And some people might push back saying, well, they should use whatever tool that they would like. But what is your what is your reasoning behind not because you are very tech savvy and you do use technology a lot and really well. So what are some of the reasons why you say in that particular situation you ban technology? I don't believe in multitasking. I don't believe it's possible to engage deeply. That's also been well proven yeah, by research. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just a belief. It's a very, yes, absolutely. Exactly. And, and I, I actually, as part of my introduction to the students, I say, you know, I, there is an absolute ban in this course. Bring paper and a pencil. That's all you need in this course. Do not bring anything else. And, you know, and they, 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 you know, they're very upset by this in the first few weeks, I have to say. They're not happy. Mm. And if we were to do an evaluation, of my teaching at that point, it would be very poor because students, especially the students we're teaching, they've never been without technology. Many of them have never sat without any distraction and read. We also have to kind of meet them where they, where they are, right? So I say to them, it's, it's just bear with me. You may not like this at the beginning, but bear with me. I have experience in this and I'd like you just to try this for me and for yourselves and for your own learning, I think you'll find there's a benefit, but let's try it together. So, so, so when they do, you know, they give me that leeway and, and themselves that leeway ultimately, right? But they do, they engage it and it's hard for them in the first few weeks. I take a break halfway through and say, okay, you have 10 minutes if you really need to look at your phone. But then I get rid of that piece. And then we have that three hour chunk where we can really be in the classroom. Hands down, I mean, there's some that will never wanna get rid of their phones. I understand that. But most of the students are incredibly positive about the experience. They say things like, I've never gotten to know so many people in a class before. I've never <laughs> actually listened in, my, in a class before as much as I do here. I <laughs> felt like I had to write down the key ideas instead of transcribing the lecture, which is what they're usually doing. And so that, I think, along with this kind of immersive, educational, discursive environment that I'm trying to create, works for a lot of students, I would say most students. Right. And you're really guiding them to the key ideas and to reflecting on their learning as well in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great. That's fantastic. I mean, you you really do use so many amazing pedagogical approaches. And also, you're well known for your experimentation of your pedagogical approaches. And during your doctorate and your postdoctoral work at Harvard, 
you began teaching undergraduate students and trying different approaches and experimenting with your teaching. So what prompted you to start this kind of experimentation, which I know that you still do today? Yeah, I, I'm just really, I'm just interested. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in being effective. It's difficult to be effective as a teacher for all of your students, frankly, because everyone has a different learning need. So the the question then is, how are you most effective? And I think for me, that's just always fascinated me. And so when I had the opportunity then to have my own classroom, first at Harvard, and uh, first I taught it as a teaching assistant and, you know, had limited carry out my own vision. But then I did have my own classroom at at Harvard, then in the freshman seminar program. And that's where I just kind of went wild, you know, and I just thought, this is so exciting. I had 15 first-year undergraduate students who, hands down, were the most curious, engaged, just brilliant, feisty, you know, students. I experimented with all kinds of approaches and learned during that process a number of really key pieces, you know, how to write a good syllabus and how to lay out expectations, how to connect the learning activities to outcomes, um, how to be creative and have fun, but still maintain a respectful professional environment, uh, right? Especially Mm -hmm. as a young female, um, this is Mm -hmm. particularly challenging sometimes. How to effectively organize group work, how to bring students together, pull them apart, bring them back together, how to navigate and connect for them in ways that they can digest and comprehend uh, these connections to big ideas or to theory. theory. So So what were some of the examples of your earlier experimentation? How did you start? Uh, Much like what I do in my classes today, actually. I hope it's a little bit more refined, (laughs) but who knows? (laughs) But... uh, so I do a lot of group work. I do a lot of um, reflection. You know, I, I still maintain this kind of dividing the class in time into smaller segments that build on each other, that speak to each other. Depending on the personality of the class and the culture of the class that develops, I really tailor it to that class. No class is the same for me, really. And no course is the same, frankly. Uh, because, you know, some of the substantive pieces may be similar, but the way that it's delivered and how I think about delivery and engagement and conversation within the class sphere is, it varies just depending on what's happening in the classroom. So for some courses, I think about, for example, you know, if they're, if they're small enough that I can do it within a class of 300, I'm a little bit more limited in certain things, Mm. Uh, you know, in the smaller courses with for us, for 60, 65 students, I think about, for example, um, I teach a, cor- a second year course on social theory and social mm-hmm. justice and key concepts in social justice. And in that course, we, we study the work of John Rawls, and who's a famous political theorist who talks a lot about and argues for you know, understanding justice through the lens of equality. Frankly, he's a little tricky to understand for a second year class. And, and a lot of students really struggle with his ideas, but his ideas are so important and so foundational. And so I, I, I give them some reading, but then actually when we come to class, we enact his theory physically. So we embody his theory. And hmm. so I, I bring the 65 students in. I have a very, very large 
sorry. <laughs> from, that is my biggest piece of material. And I divide the class into two spheres. And very famously, uh, John Rawls ask, asks us, uh, those people reading and thinking about justice, to envision how we might create a world without knowing who we are in the world. Meaning, if we hmm. had no idea what our position was, uh, what our education was, what we our profession is, how, what kind of world would we create, right? And his answer is a much more equal world, actually, right? Because we all want access to education and healthcare and so on. But so what I what I do with the students, first of all, put them into groups and give them an identity. Here's who you are in this world. But now you physically take that piece of paper and you put it in your back pocket and you disassociate yourself from that identity. Now let's all come together behind the veil, right behind the sorry, as it turns out, <laughs> tape the two whiteboards. <laughs> now, if we think about what kind of society we want to create, what would it look like? You don't know who you are. So what would it look That's like, amazing. right? And then we go back, they pull out their identities. And now I say, now, how would you critique? Using John Rawls's words, how would you critique that society? That's so, so that's a way of bringing students to a very complex theory by way of an experience. Immersing them into it. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. That sounds like a wonderful learning experience. So. <laughs> absolutely. And in an online, in online teaching, there's so many other added complications, and especially in this type of engagement that you just described. But last year, when all the universities went on to online teaching, you have experimented with your teaching methods by launching two versions of your fourth year law and legal studies class. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you were testing and how you were testing it? Yeah. We touched a little bit on this earlier in terms of the the small group, the question of small groups and how uh, how that would either foster or not foster engagement. What I really wanted to learn is, you know, how we foster engagement, how we do that, uh, particularly at the fourth year level, which is really the, the capstone of the undergraduate experience. Right. And we have smaller classes. Uh, for the, you know, really for the first time for many students, how do we mimic that in an online format? And does the experience change, alter, is it improved for students who are accompanied by a specific group of their peers during that semester? So what I did, hmm. so I had two courses, exactly the same content, exactly the same syllabus, except I divided one class into two halves. I went through all of the assignments and so on with each other, talking with each other, logging with each other, responding to each other, being in book clubs with those two sections. But the other class, they were divided into groups of four. And so my question was, will they engage more? Will they uh, learn more? Will their perception hmm. and their understanding of, of what they've learned uh, improve or not? How will they evaluate that? So I call them learning pods <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and very distinct. They all got to name their learning pods. So I really, it was a culture of the learning unit that I tried to create. Right. And we'll see, we'll see what they say. 
I don't know yet, hmm. but my impressions are that the learning pods did affect their learning and perception of learning, that they interacted more with each other, that there was more of a responsibility to each other, that can a tie that, that was created. If one person was not able to blog in a week, the others would jump in and make up for their work. Right. Um, so all of these different social pieces that came into play in the small groups that didn't happen in the, in the larger groups. Hmm, so, but we'll see what the perception of the students is. So we did the study where we asked them to fill out, you know, a basic kind of questionnaire about themselves first, and then their perception of learning and, and how they learn best online and, and you know, all of these kind mm -hmm. of uh, fundamental markers. And then we surveyed them twice more during the semester at the, in the midway point and then the end point. And so we'll connect all of those in this study and see if we're right, if it works. And if it does, then we can use that online in the future. <laughs> right. So I was just going to say, is that going to influence how you're going to teach in, in your future courses as well? Yeah. I mean, certainly, well, certainly online. Yes. Very interesting. I'm very curious to see what, what happens and what the students say. Um, and one of the big topics in, in learning in, at all different levels is testing, which has long been a contentious issue on uh, how we test students and especially how we test them now in this online learning experience. You tried a new approach to testing. And in one of your third year required courses where you had the students actually write part of the exams. So can you explain to me what you were doing and why? Mm -hmm. So, yes. <laughs> I was really inspired by Eric Mazur at, at Harvard, who came to Carleton and delivered a lecture um, in my first years in teaching at Carleton. And uh, he was talking about, so he's in, the, in physics, I think, and he was talking about um, how he approaches exams. And uh, I think he was working on the midterm exam at that point and, and how he, he created this kind of collaborative way of, of approaching those. And I thought that was really interesting for a number of reasons. So I really wanted to try it, but I thought it was interesting because the way that we test, especially in non-legal studies, if we are to test using a, a multiple choice exam, there are limited actually options that we have in terms of what we're testing, what kind of knowledge we're testing. And when we do that, you know, the multiple choice exam, particularly in very large classes, is useful in the sense that forces the students to sit and to study what they've learned over the semester. And I think that's a useful activity to sit and to put a course into perspective right after you've taken it. I think that's really yeah. important. I don't think we should do away with testing at all. But then when they go into this huge auditorium with a thousand other students, a lot of noise outside of the context mm -hmm. from where they've learned the material, and are in a high pressure examination situation, the effectiveness of that evaluative tool is minimized, I think. But the other reality is that we have more and more students and not enough resources. Right? I don't have enough teaching assistants. I can't in a 65 student class give a, an essay as a final exam. Because mm. I don't have the capacity for that. Yeah, so absolutely. That's the reality of it. That's the reality. And so how do we create a testing situation that embodies different types of, uh, that understands that context, but then fosters a different type of learning 
actually, and and a different type of qualitative experience. I you know this this whole approach to testing, you know, where it's this high stress situation. I'm not sure that's needed. I'm not sure that's a way that we develop, you know, student skills or resilience. I think there are other ways that we can do that because I think that is also important. We have to be able to function under pressure. So I think that's important to teach students, but I'm not sure that's the way to do it. And particularly Mm. when I think it really does limit their results. Mm -hmm. A lot of students don't do well on multiple choice exams because various reasons. So I I, I thought a lot and and started developing uh, over many years a different kind of approach to this set of problems, actually. (laughs) I have now developed an approach to the kind of final exam that is group-based, that is collaborative, that takes the final exam scenario out of that high pressure context. Mm-hmm. And the way that I, I do that, I, um, so I, I do give a multiple choice exam in the end. So that's, that's the same, but the students are responsible for writing the multiple choice questions. And that's part of their assignment set for the term. And so each student has to write three exam questions. And their assignment is to write the question, the various answers, and then to substantiate why that's an important question and which one the right answer is and why the other ones aren't correct. Hmm. And so they at least get an opportunity then during the term to write and to familiarize themselves deeply with, you know, at least three of those readings. And so that's useful. I ask for them in week, you know, whatever it is, week 10. And so they have 10 weeks of material that they can use. And then I choose, and sometimes I rewrite or, you know, I I spend some time kind of redrafting a little bit, depending on the way that the question is framed. The the questions that they submit are used as the basis for the multiple choice exam. They are asked to review, just like they would for any other exam, the materials for the course. And then when they come into the same classroom that they have learned in studies mm-hmm. show that there's a higher level of retention when you take the exam in the same place that you're that you've studied the material. Definitely. So they they come into the same classroom. They all are asked to bring their computers or devices or borrow a device, and then they take the exam as you would ordinarily any other multiple choice exam. There's no really time limit on it, so I don't do it under that kind of time pressure you know, they don't really have a lot of pressure per se in terms of the, as compared to the other types of multiple choice exams. And then we stop and then the students are put into random groups. Yeah. So randomized groups of four or five students, they go to different areas of the classroom. And the way that we can do this in one classroom is we randomize both the questions and the answers. That's easy to do on the back end of these very complex learning management systems. So they can all be taking the exam at the same time and be talking out loud about the answers because they're all working in their individualized groups and taking, you know, if you have a hundred questions, there's no way they're going to happen on the same question at the same time. Likelihood is very low. So, but what happens then they, they take the exam in groups. And so they read the question together. They all have whiteboards. They're writing their answers. If they have worked something out, they can do that on the whiteboard. They're teaching each other the material. 
right? Because they have to persuade each other what the right answer is. And if they get the wrong answer the first time, they have another opportunity to get the right answer. And that that's different from the individual exam. You don't know if you get the yes. right answer or the wrong answer. We, we still have to wait for the group exam part of that. But in the, in the group exam, they answer until they have the right answer. And then they can go to the next one. But they talk about, well, why did they get it wrong? Wait a minute. What was it about, right? And in my observation of this system, the conversations are so fascinating because the students all become teachers, all of them. Absolutely. And the way you learn a subject best is by teaching it, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And they leave knowing what the right answer is. It's amazing. Which is also different from a general exam. So they've now had the opportunity to review in terms of writing the questions. They've had review process in preparation for the exam. Then they've taken it on their own. Then they take it with a group and they know the answers. And they leave, and anecdotal evidence suggests that they leave feeling very good. You know, this, I've had students <laughs> say to me, this is the best exam I've ever had. <laughs> so uh, because they feel that they've also learned something and they know where they misstepped and why. It's really bringing it back to the essence of why we have exams is really to improve your learning. It's not to be judged and, and condemned to whatever grade you get. It's, it's really to be able to improve your learning and know what you know and realize what you have to improve on. I just absolutely love the fact that you're approaching the exam from so many different perspectives and different directions to really enhance the learning by writing the questions, which also makes you think about the material very differently. And also in writing a, a multiple choice, writing the wrong choices, to have to justify that also makes you really reflect and think about where people can go wrong in answering a question, which is a very different way of thinking about the material and, and an important way to deepen your knowledge, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic. And as you said, the students also love it. Students love it. I mean, nobody likes taking an exam, frankly. I'm not sure, <laughs> right? But so within that context, uh, yeah, no, the students love it and they leave, yeah, feeling like they've, they've really learned something. And then on the administrative end, there's no grading. All the grades are automatically calculated. So actually the amount of time, which is substantial, that I would have spent and my TAs would have spent grading that final exam can now be pushed forward into the course. Hmm, that's brilliant. Right? So it, really is. so it helps in that way as well. I love that to, to really redesign the way we're doing exam. This is just, you've just highlighted so many amazing strategies that you use. That's absolutely fantastic. So thank you. And for teachers and professors who would like to ex experiment and innovate with their teaching strategies, what advice would you have? I mean, you've highlighted so many amazing strategies that you use, but what would you say would be a good start for someone to say, yes, I'd like to experiment with how I teach? Be yourself, be yourself. A good professor understands what they're best at. It's not about technology mm. or lack thereof or yeah. more technology. It, it's really about what are my personal best qualities when it comes to being in the classroom? And, and how can I bring those in? It's so important because, you know, we've all had that professor who stands at the front of the classroom and tells stories. And three hours later, you're enthralled mm. by the story and realize you've learned something about 
political science or history or whatever the subject matter might be along the way, right? And you've just been absorbed. Well, that person should not change their teaching style. You know, they should not start using PowerPoints. They should not start, you know, they, 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 they should don't flip the classroom. Don't put that online. Right. <laughs> so that's that yeah. person's charm. That's that person's contribution, you know? So, so really be yourself and bring what, what you feel comfortable bringing and, and deliver that in the best way possible. I actually had a, a really good example of this. In my second year, when I had to hand off one of my classes and I was teaching a first year law course through, uh, through hip hop. And so we would, uh, every class, we would uh, have a hip hop song and, and students would, I, at first I chose them and then students would choose them or poetry so they could do hip hop or poetry or kind of, you know, slam poetry. And uh, they, they, they could choose it and then talk about it and so on. And when I, I handed the, the class off to, to a colleague, she, she wrote me a few weeks later and she said, I can't do the, I can't do the hip hop thing. It's, it's, I, I don't know anything about it. Uh, I mm. don't know how to talk about <laughs> it. I don't know. It just falls totally flat. And the yeah. students are just laughing at me. <laughs> right. And so I, I felt so badly for her, but I, I you know, I just said, then drop it and do what you, what you feel comfortable because then that comes across. And so she ended up doing that in the class turnaround. It was fine, but you know, but it was really a really great lesson in bring out who you are and, and your passion for the subject matter, most importantly. Absolutely key. I mean, you're in that subject because you love it and even showing that and sharing why you love it already makes your class a much better class, doesn't it? And that's so infectious. So, oh, that's really great advice. My goodness, I could talk to you for hours and hours. You, you do such a phenomenal, unique approaches to, to teaching and learning, and I absolutely love it. Thank you very much for sharing that. And before we end, I always like to ask if there's something that you would recommend to read or listen to that inspires you in this regard. You know, I think putting yourself in, in a context where you allow yourself to be personally inspired is the key here. Hmm. And, you know, for everyone that's different, for some people it's nature, for some people it's poetry, for some hmm. people it's music, for some people it's conversations with friends, for some people, you know, it really depends. But I think my recommendation is open yourself up to inspiration and awe hmm. and then feed that back into your classes allow yourself to be fired up about life and then feed that back into your classroom and share that with the students. You know, when something happens, that's really extraordinary and wonderful. And, you know, I think that, you know, just general approach to being open to being inspired is, is really key to, to also maintaining your own passion in the subject area. Absolutely. So, so true. Well, my goodness, it was just phenomenal to talk to you. I really, really enjoyed hearing about all the wonderful ways that you approach and you experiment and continuously improve and change your teaching that it's very inspiring and thank you so much for sharing that with everyone well thank you for asking me to be on your podcast this has been so delightful and uh, thank you so much thank you <laughs>